A couple little things before we uh, before we start. Um, I've had a friend here um, left at five o'clock this morning. He's not here, but uh, I'd like to ask you to pray for him. I don't know. Most of you don't look like you read Popular Mechanics, but uh, an author by the name of Logan Ward was hired by Popular Mechanics to do an article on our flying car. It was going to be three pages and. He convinced us, you know, they just don't do many three-page articles. So he came down to iTech, to our Research and Development Center in Central Florida. And uh, I want you to remember, Central Florida, it's like warm this time of year, and we have room for a few more. So Logan came down. You know, when the article came out, it wasn't three pages. It was six pages long. Because when he came down, he was totally focused on the uh, technology on the flying car, one that actually flies. But when he got down there, he's a journalist. He wanted to know why we were doing this. And the more we talked about that, the more engaged he got about that. And when the article came out in Popular Mechanics, for those of you who didn't see it, it was in May of 2009. It was three and a quarter pages. Well, it was two and three quarter pages about a flying car. And it was three and a quarter pages about missions in Popular Mechanics. And uh, Logan... Logan was so fascinated with the idea, not the flying car, but why people like us would want to be innovative to help people that can't pay us to do it, that he decided that he wanted to write a book. Now, he's written a number of books, great writer. He wanted to write a book about the development of the flying car, he said, but, but more about iTech and more about you know, the engagement of our team of people with people in frontier areas of the world. It took him a year to convince a publisher to fund him writing this book. And uh, when he heard that we were going to be here, he wanted to come here and see our interaction, my interaction with you guys. And I'm telling you, I was looking at what's been happening here for the last three days through his eyes. Now, Logan grew up in a um, Unitarian church. You know, he knows a little bit of the gospel, but... Last night when we were down there at the worship service, I was looking, it suddenly occurred to me, here's Logan, he's sitting here observing all of this, and then Joyce Batson, we're staying with the Batsons, Joyce just said, so Logan, do you have a church background? What? And Logan started explaining what his church background was, and uh, Joyce is pretty aggressive if you know Joyce, so she just kept pressing him, he said, you know what? I can't figure out what is going on here. But he said, I really like it. <laughs> Logan's a great writer. He has influence over a lot of people. I told him, no, I want to write the book. And he said, uh-uh. He said, if Steve, if you write the book, it'll just be for church people. He said, if I write the book, it'll be for a broad audience. He said, let me write the book. So he's already been down to Ecuador. He's already been into the jungles. But now he wants to kind of track us around and this what a great place to have him come to see what was going on can you imagine if you didn't understand what was happening last night and you see all these rational people which is unusual because most Christians are irrational I mean most people the only uh, the only idea they have of Christians is what they see on television you know televangelists and then there's you know this big scandal and this big scandal and then Here's 35, 2,500, 3,000 people, mostly students. I think 1,300 of the 2,500 people here, and I can see it. There's a, there's a white hair every once in a while. But, uh, <laughs> and he was watching you guys. He was watching you worship the Lord. And then Paul, getting up there and reading from Revelation. How many of you read Revelation? Three. In this room. And Paul getting up there and emotionally talking about the king who is worthy and, and the need to open the seals. And I just kept thinking, that's what we're here about. That's what medicine has to do. It's about opening the seals that have sealed the book from people who need to know. So, if you all would pray for um, Logan, I just thought, you know, I'm going to spend all this time to help somebody else write a book. Come on. And then I thought, what if this is a divine appointment? And uh, I mean, think of the influence. But, you know, it's, he's God's son. He's my friend now. He's been following us around the country. Uh, pray for Logan. Not that 
our will would be done, but that I know that God loves Logan. And then I got two other little quick ones. One of the programs that we have at iTech, and I'm jumping ahead because I didn't want to forget it, is iMed. Um, we have iDent, iC, iFix, iFly, IT. We miss the iPhone and the iPod. And, uh, <laughs> and we have about 20 more modules that we need to do for iMed, and we don't have a doctor. And when we did have a doctor, we didn't have a videographer. Now we have a videographer, Brian, who's up there behind the camera. Where would you expect a videographer to be? And, um, and we have a young couple coming from South Florida. He's Puerto Rican. She's um, Cuban background. She grew up in Ecuador. Her dad was a missionary pilot and was killed in an accident down there. And they want to come and join iTech. And yesterday, a young lady well, young relative to me, old compared to you, came up and said that she has been feeling that, God, she's been in family practice for 12 years. Um, she got a master's in divinity first, and then she got an MD, and she's been practicing for 12 years with Puerto Ricans so she can speak Spanish, communicate in Spanish. And she came up saying, you know, I feel like God is calling me to do something more. And now, you've got to be a gorilla to understand this next deal. So she moved out of her apartment, moved into one room, and, uh, and then quit her job because she felt like God was calling her to something else. And she was saying, you know, but I just can't find organizations that want to go out. She said, I think that we should be training trainers to do this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, i got to go to the bathroom. No, I haven't. <laughs> that usually happens when... <laughs> God's doing this to me because I used to laugh at Jenny and our daughter Stephanie because now, now if they're going, I'm going. Um, I mean, this is medical, so that's okay, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, it was hard for me not to vibrate because I thought, oh, God, when we go to GMHC, would you furnish us a doctor who already believes that we can teach people, God followers, where they live to meet the needs of their own people physically, like King's Pride said, but that's only half of it, so then they can share the gospel with them. So if you would like to pray that God would uh, make it clear to uh, Trina that she's supposed to go to Florida, I would appreciate it. <laughs> you know what they say, Jeremiah says, God has plans for you, and I'm here to tell you what they are. <laughs> no, no, not really, but... And if some of you would like to participate, you know what? Some of you, you've got 20 more years of education ahead of you. But you know what? You can go to the mission field. I was going to speak at a church once, and this, this wasn't on my notes. But this pastor introduced me, telling the, or the, the group there that I was going to tell about the six men who went to South America to reach this violent, savage group of people and were killed. And he kept talking about these six men, these six men. I thought... Man, I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know who the sixth guy is. Because the, the story that I heard, there was only five of them. And then the pastor called me up, and I'm coming up, and he's walking down. And then he stopped and he said, Oh, some of you know this story, right? And you thought there were only five. I'm saying, Yeah, me too. And he said, No, Ed McCulley had a friend in college. Ed was going to be an attorney. This guy thought he was going to be a missionary. And they made a pact together that if God called one of them to go into full-time Christian service or the mission field and the other one to go into business or, you know, a job or whatever, that the one that, that was making a living would support the other one. They said instead, Ed McCulley went down to the jungles. And then this pastor said, you know what? Fred Smith, I suggest you, went to Ecuador... Every bit as much as Ed McCulley. And you know what? I agree. So you can go, you can send, you can... But you don't have to wait until you get done with all your education. I have a son that has four children. He's about, he's about my age now. <laughs> and he's just started his medical practice. He's a general surgeon. I so badly wanted one of my boys to be a surgeon because I figured I'll get to go in and learn and then I can go practice back down in the jungles. And Sean, Sean will not let me in the surgical... Okay. 
I think that's it. Oh, I wanted to tell you about some really important people to me. Um, I got a picture I want to show you. And then I need, I need four volunteers. Can I have four volunteers? Okay, would you please stand up? We're not going to embarrass you. I just want you. I need three more volunteers. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. One more on this side. We don't want to be lopsided. Okay. Yes. Yes. Oh, you're vo- no, Charlotte. You're a volunteer later. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I want to. I want to tell you who this is. See the pretty lady there, um, the blonde one. We were in Korea, and people kept coming up to Jenny and saying, oh, "Blonde, so young." <laughs> I think they've been watching movies and thought she was a platinum blonde. Um, Jenny is holding Lily or Chloe. I can't tell. They're identical twins, and I'm holding the other one. <laughs> now I can... I say, hi, Lily. She said, no, hi, Chloe. And I say, hi, Chloe. And she said, no, hi, Lily. <laughs> but one of them just fell out of a wagon last Saturday and knocked her front tooth out. So for the next four years, I'm going to be able to tell who is who <laughs> if I can figure out which one lost her tooth. Okay, so that's Lily and Chloe. And then on the left there, that's my oldest granddaughter. That's Joy, Jessie Joy, uh, who is now two inches taller at 11 than her mother. And uh, when they go shopping, a lady came up to him and said, Children, you need to be with your mommy and daddy. And Jenny said, I'm the mommy. And the lady looked at her and said, If you don't go find your mommy and daddy, I'm going to call the manager. And she's holding my youngest granddaughter, Glory, and then right behind them is Mary Lou. She was born while Aunt Mary Lou McCulley, Ed's widow, was, uh, was having her memorial service. So Jesse named her Mary Lou, Mary Lou Dawa. And then that's Katie right beside her sitting on the uh, branch. And uh, I'm holding Lily or Chloe on one side. And then Emma. Emma's our tippy-toe walker. I mean, she just always walks like this. And her older sister, who's sitting there in the purple pants with her legs crossed, she is a dancer. She was dancing on point when she was nine. She just loves to dance. And then beside her is, is Haley, who really thinks that God made a mistake because she really, really wants to be a boy. <laughs> and we have 13 granddaughters and only three grandsons, so we count Haley. When we have sleepovers and we have the boys, so far at least, Haley comes with the boys. And, um, and, uh, oh, and then that's Gracie. Gracie sitting on that far end. And then Zachary Stephen is right down there in front. My namesake. And then that's Nat Nat, Natalie, right behind me. And then Johnny Boy. Now, this isn't nice, but I've always called him Chinky John. We, he looks so Asian that when we went to a Chinese restaurant, the Chinese lady came out and said, oh, Chinese baby, so cute, so cute. And I said, would you believe half Italian? They said, no, this Chinese baby, she took him and took him in the kitchen and paraded him around. They thought that... Um, he still gives those cheek-in-the-neck hugs. I mean, just... Oh, and he just stay there as long as you hold him. You can keep on working. He'll just cling and do that. Oh, man. And then that's Stephanie, right above. Some of you know that uh, Jenny's and my 20-year-old... Only daughter, Stephanie, died um, about 10 years ago. Stephanie was born right after. Stephanie is Jamie Nate's uh, daughter, and so they named her Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-I-E, named for me. So that's Stephanie very much, very very intense, loves to read bright, but but then they all are. Um, And then Jacob Dewey. If you saw End of the Spear, the little boy that played my, uh, my little brother Phil, that's, that's, that's my grandson right up there, who in the movie, if you see um, uh, Chad Allen says, do you want to go to mommy? And he goes, <laughs> he wanted to get rocks. He loves rocks. He did love rocks. He's my helper. He will come. If I'm going to work during the day around the house, he comes. He'll be there at sunup, and he will not leave until the day is done. Um, I think that's all we got. We got one in the hopper, but so far just 16. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like each one of you to pick one of my grandchildren that we don't need. 
I couldn't think of a scenario to say, somebody came to me and said, you've got too many children, four have got to go. 1982, that future movie that some of us remember. So would you pick one? Okay, we'll come back to you. <laughs> yes. No. Thank you. What I want you to think about this morning is every day when we go off on a detour and we start doing things that please us but that aren't what God has called us to do, you know what we're doing? We're choosing some of God's children for Him to be separated from. Now, I understand, brothers and sisters, that I can't save anybody. I've been trying so hard. I can't save anybody. I can't transform anybody. But I am an ambassador for Christ and so are you. And he has not only told us what to do to give his message to his children that he's been alienated from, but he's told us how to do it. And one of the things that we have not been doing is we have not been doing his will, his way in a number of areas. One of the things is that the Christian community used to be the most innovative community in the world. You go back and read about some of the old old scientists, I mean that from from deciding that the world was round, most of them, many, many of them were faith based people. They were people of the book. And they were leading in technology. They were leading in innovation. They were the explorers. They were the first people that went you know, when David Livingston went to Africa People had been going to the island nations and then they went to the coastal areas and David Livingston said, I, I see this thousand campfires burning in the interior. And so he started going in and recruited people to go in. Do you know what the average life expectancy was of those missionaries that were going to the interior of Africa? Two and a half months. That was the average life expectancy when they first started going in. And you know what is incredible? They kept on going. And now... We have dropped behind. Now, I'm not ragging on you for having an iPhone. I even have mine in my case this morning. It's not the latest one, but as soon as Jamie gets tired of his, then he's going to pass it on to me. That's how I get my stuff. And then the grandkids take it, and so I get it when they're done with it. In the parable of the unrighteous steward, the unrighteous steward took the assets of his master And he realized that he was going to get fired because he hadn't been doing a good job. So he called in all of the debtors, the master's debtors, and he started cutting what they owed down by half, by a quarter. And you know why he was doing it? So that he would have somebody that would look out for him when his master fired him. The most incredible part of that story is it says, when the master found out what he had done, he praised him. And then the application of that story is, it says... Why is it that the children of darkness are more creative, are more innovative, are more determined, are more committed than you children of light? It's a condemnation of us and brothers and sisters just as surely as you wouldn't choose one of my grandchildren. And I promise you, if you chose one, I would see you after. Because I love every single one of them. Every single one of them are special. And the next three I've already got planned. We're going to have 20. <laughs> Unfortunately, only Jenny is in production anymore. So, <laughs> But 411, she's, I think she's good for another three. <clears throat> if I was God and you came and stood before me someday, my first question would be, what did you do with the resources that I gave you and with my message And if I found out that you'd been vacationing for a while or you'd gotten detoured or you were on a coffee break or a... And I'm thinking this because when Stephanie died, I kept thinking, oh, please, please don't anybody tell me that somebody was here at the hospital who could have done something to send my daughter home with me. But they were distracted. They were out. They were smoking. They were, you know, they were on coffee break. Or they just were too tired. I don't think I would have been able to forgive them. And then it dawned on me, one day I'm going to stand before my Heavenly Father. So, our topic this morning is creative solutions, innovation, and multiplication in missions. Now, I want to do an experiment. I have two volunteers. 
I'm sorry, I don't know your first name. Jeanette. Jeanette, would you come over and take this side? And Charlotte is going to take this side. And uh, we're going to do an experiment. We've done this once before, but a lot of you are new. So we're going to do it. On this side, Jeanette is going to do missions. She's going to simulate missions with you all the way we've been doing it. And then Charlotte is going to demonstrate over here how God called us to do it. Okay? And we're just going to see how it turns out. Now, the way we've been doing it is we've been doing, we've been being the professionals. What we've done with the Great Commission is we've, we, the coaches, we've gone down on the field and we're playing and we've relegated the, the players to the stands. So, I mean, it's not supposed to be that way. We didn't intend for it to be that way for very long, but we got used to it and so did the players sitting in the stands. So, so what we've been doing is evangelism. I've heard a thousand times, I'm sorry, we like what you do, but, but we've, we've reserved our involvement for church planning. No medicine. I mean, we don't. We don't. We just can't afford to get diverted into these other things. So we we only church, plant churches. And I wonder how do you do that in Muslim countries if you're not going in and showing the people that you care? Because people don't care what we know until they know that we care, right? So Jeanette and you all are going to do evangelism missions, okay? So when I start, Jeanette is going to point to anyone. You can skip over if you want. You can just pick the ones that you like the best. But when she points at you, then you're evangelizing. Would you please stand up? One every second. Okay. Now, over here, we're going to do discipleship missions. And that takes a lot longer because it just takes a lot longer to disciple somebody who's come to faith than it does to just, you know, count the number and write the prayer letter home. So we're going to... Tell Charlotte she can only pick somebody every five seconds. But when Charlotte picks you, then the next time I call out five seconds, then you are ready to go and pick somebody else to be a disciple. So every five seconds, any of you who are standing up over here, you pick somebody, okay? Now, if you all stay in the same place, you know what's going to happen. You're going to run out of people, right? Okay? You think we can do this? Because the average age in here is about 14, I think we can do this. Okay, are you ready? Now, I know who's going to win because it doesn't take nearly as long. But let's just see. Let's play it out. Okay, are you ready? Get set. Go. Okay, go again over here. Okay, go again over here. Everybody who's been picked over here, pick somebody. Go again over here. You might have to move to go get them. Okay, again over here. Again over here. They're still trying to figure this out because we haven't had much experience with this system over here. Okay, again over here. Again over here. Again. 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 What is this? Again. <laughs> no, no, this is Char- this is this is Jeanette's side. Okay, I think we got it. <clears throat> I think that we just saw an example of what's going to happen when we start doing discipleship evangelism, we're going to be in North America going, that was really good. I was like, no, he's mine. No, he's mine. That's why I asked you if you can make people do what you want them to do. Jeanette, it was just calm over here. There was no noise. There was no commotion. Didn't have to give her any additional instructions. Just in case you happen to miss this, and this is just one little verse, but 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men. But it's, yeah, I'm not going to say that means women too, because then you might get me in that, you know, that whole deal with the, uh, what Bible is it? So I'm not going to go there, so... It says, um, yep, you pick others who will be able to teach others also. That's called discipleship. 
Do any of you have children? Sixteen of you. <laughs> I told you the average age is pretty You know what? You know what our relationship with our children is? That is discipleship. And I will be able to tell whether you're good disciplers or not because about the time that your children hit 30, if they don't know how to drive and they don't know how to do the laundry. Now, I would have said 20 a few years ago, but now it takes longer. (laughs) If your children, when they get to be my age, if you're still cooking dinner for them and you're still supporting them, then I know that something is wrong either with them or with you and probably with you. Because what we've been called to do is we've been called to... uh, to disciple. It takes a little bit longer, but it multiplies so fast. And even if it didn't, it isn't up to us to win the world. It's just up, up to us to be obedient. This calling that we have to be a Christian is not a, a little add-on thing. It is an extreme call to a radical life following a revolutionary leader. And if we make it anything else, a young man came up to me and he said, What would you suggest? I work in Turkey. And he said, in Turkey, the culture is the religion. He said, what do I do in a place like that? And I thought, hello, to be a Christian is a call to a separate culture. I mean, think about it. Look at the bumper stickers around us. The one with the most toys wins. I mean, that's that's sort of the uh, looking out for number one. Get it before somebody else does. (coughs) Excuse me. And... But the, the book that we read says the first will be last. And it says, and last will be first. And, and radical stuff like um, the borrower will be the lender's slave. Get ready, folks. We are headed for slavery to China. Um, it says that the, that the one who serves will be the highest one. It says to, to die is gain. To live is Christ, not us. It calls, Paul calls us to be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, not owners. I mean, this is radical stuff. If you hang around with non-believers for a little while, you start getting it. I mean, hang around with Logans and people who've grown up kind of church, but they don't understand this thing. That's why when he came down to write a story about the flying car, he just couldn't figure out, so how much does your, how much on average do your engineers make? I mean, that's the kind of thing he wanted to know. And I said, well... Let's see, he's a volunteer and, um, and he brought equipment with him. And uh, he gets $500 a month because, you know, the cost of living has gone up. Uh, but then he supports himself. And Oh, and these guys, we give them three meals a week, not a day. Some of them have misunderstood some of our interns. They thought they were going to get three meals a day and a place to live. They get three meals a week and a place to live. And he was just looking and saying, why did they come? And you know what? I had no idea. Why would somebody do... It's because we have become part of a different culture. Um, The need for innovation is something that we really need to do. But I want to give you four suggested changes that I think that we need to make or four principles that we need to implement for us to be able to really carry out the Great Commission. I don't mean just us. I mean all God followers together. But I would suggest that it's especially critical for us here because we are having more and more and more doors closed to us here in North America, partly because of who we are, partly because of what our government does, partly because people don't like the richest people around, and, um, and we won't be very soon. You, how many of you are under the age of 25? You are the first generation in North America that's going to live at a lower standard than your parents did. And when you all find out that you're going to have to support us in retirement, there is likely to be a revolution here. Because I've grown up in countries where they have revolutions, and that's what causes revolution. When you find out that you're going to pay higher tax rates than we did so that we can live out the rest of our years playing golf and comparing golf carts, you aren't going to be happy with it. Especially when you find out that you can't afford the houses that we, your parents, live in. And you can't afford the, uh, the extravagant vacations that we, your parents, have been enjoying. Things are, things are happening here. And you know what? This is something that is really, is really critical for us to understand. We keep hearing about, we keep telling each other about all of our successes and missions. But you know what? 
Today, if you took all the missionary efforts, all the Christian efforts to reach the world, all of it, and combined it all, we aren't even beginning to take the gospel to even the population growth, much less the three billion people that have no access to the gospel. Guys, I don't want to stand before my Heavenly Father and say, but man, it felt so good the way we were doing it. I don't think that that's going to stand. I know that's not going to stand. You pick my grandchildren and say, that one's not necessary. Uh Uh-uh. Let me just tell you, you know how long it took for the world's population to reach one billion people? From the time we had any way of counting, 1,800 years. Do you know how long it took to reach two billion? 125 years. The third billion we reached in 35 more years. The fourth billion in 17 years. Those of you who have new iPhones, just say population growth in the world, and it'll probably tell you this. The next one took the fifth billion, 15 years, the sixth billion, 12 years, and I heard it on public, national public radio, so I know it's true. <laughs> we just reached the seventh billion a week and a half ago, and it took 10 years. And all of our efforts in the Christian world to reach the world with God's message are not even, we're not even beginning to reach the population growth, much less go out to those frontier areas where the gospel hasn't gone. So our, our job is getting bigger, and this is what I suggest to you from the scriptures, that the first principle that we have to obey is that we cannot leave anybody out of the formula. Every God follower has the same commission that you and I do. And when we go out and we do for our brothers and sisters what they should be doing for themselves and what they're capable of doing for themselves, you know what? We are undermining God's way of doing things. We are undermining His will for us to go out and share His gospel. And what we're doing is we're perpetuating the fact that we will never get this job done. Ever. There are more people today that haven't got any access to the gospel, even if they wanted to, than there has ever been in the history of the world. Sorry to prick your bubble. But it's not because we don't have the resources. I mean, we've got the Holy Spirit. He's the one that can make it happen. But we've got to do God's will God's way. So, no one should be omitted. We've got to get the coaches back into the stands, and we've got to get the uh, players out on the field. And that is not happening quickly here in North America because, frankly, we like feel-good ministry. We like to go and feel significant in what we do. And when we stand before the Lord and we say, I mean, it's going to be like we're going to be all Debbie Boons. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. I mean, how could, it, how could that be wrong when it, when it feels so significant to me? And I think the Lord's going to look at us and he's going to say, you are an unfaithful servant. You're in, but just by the skin of your teeth. It says that in the book. It says we're going to be tried by fire, but I'm not going to go there. Okay, so the first principle is no one should be left out either of our formula for reaching the world, nor should we leave any of God's children out. I mean, yeah, the 1040 window, all the big urban areas, but you know what? If you look in the book, the story of the good shepherd, he left 99 sheep, not in the fold. He left them out on the hillside and went looking for that one little sheep that was lost. Talk about dumb. Why would you expose 99? I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, we should expect that much loss. But it says he went out and he found that one lamb because he wasn't willing that any should perish. And then he brought it back and he says he rejoiced more over that one that he had found. And that doesn't make sense. See, we're talking a really strange culture that we've been called to. Okay, the next one is, I think that our basic strategies should be franchisable. Now, some of you folks here are innovative And some of you folks here are systematic. I mean, that's just your natural bent. I have tried to be systematic. It just doesn't work for me. I I would go to sleep if somebody would tell me, okay, Steve, you go and do this, and then you do this and do this. But I admire people that can do that and can do it and keep on doing it and keep on doing it. In fact, um, I have some friends that are really good at doing that. Do you guys have that little video? I've been trying to convince folks like you that people down in the Amazon jungle and in frontier areas are really smart. They're very capable. 
Um, and I just couldn't do it. I mean, people were saying, you're going to teach them what? To do dentistry? And I said, no, I'm not going to. I want you to. And they said, but, I mean, what kind of healthcare background do they have? And I said, nothing. And so I looked for something that we could do. Go ahead, you guys can play it and I'll explain it well. So I finally thought, you know what? People really admire aviation. What if we went down and we started building modern airplanes down in the Amazon jungle with, with Indians and tribal people down there? If they built airplanes and then we brought them up here to the North America and we sold them to people and they were flying in them, they would, it would occur to them sooner or later that, hey, this is built by Indians down in, in the jungles in, in the Amazon. So we started this little project. And by the way, when we flew up here from uh, Central Florida the other day, three of us and all the books and all this equipment that you see here, we flew in a plane built by these guys down in the jungles, within a mile of where my dad and mom lived down there. There is a container with another airplane on its way up here right now. It is our 19th airplane built by these. You know, this this was on national television. It's like 60 minutes in Ecuador because these are the first planes that have ever been manufactured in Ecuador, and they're being manufactured down in the jungles. And two of the guys building them are two of the grandsons of two of the men that killed my dad, Miniwa and Muipa. The one coming up here now, now, lest you think that these are just, you know, rustic airplanes, the newest one coming up here, the instrument panel is $100,000. When I came up here, you know, when I prepared all these notes and things while I was flying up here, well, while Oscar was flying, because I just take off and I hit this little button, and I first, before I take off, I tell Oscar where I want to go and how high I want to go and when I want to land, and, um, and Oscar flies all the way up here. So actually, I didn't write in here. I have a wireless keypad, and I put that on my lap, and then I have my iPod, thank you, Steve Jobs, taped over my instruments, because Oscar can read behind the scenes, and Oscar flew us up here. And people keep telling me, these people don't have what it takes. Every time I go out and entrust my life to that little plane, and I've flown it now... Over 200,000 miles here in all kinds of weather, ice and snow and IFR instrument conditions and things, they do have what it takes. If we would make our strategies franchisable, let me give you, let me give you an example. There were two guys, two brothers in Southern California years ago who had a barbecue stand. And then they realized that they could make hamburgers and milkshakes and fries cheaper than they could barbecue and so they changed their menu and you know what people kept coming to their little hamburger stands that each brother had one and uh, there was a guy named Ray Kroc who was selling them paper cups and these guys had multi-mixers I mean they were making so many shakes that they had a machine that could make like five shakes at the same time and uh, Ray Kroc was pretty sharp so he said you know what if I could talk these brothers into starting more restaurants I could sell a lot more cups so he kept trying to convince them to do it and they didn't want to do it they were happy with one each so they said you do it so he said, okay. So he went to Chicago and he started copying what they were doing. And today, every single one of you has been to his restaurants. They, he started, uh, the brothers started in 1948. In 1955, Ray Kroc came on in 19, uh, 1955. In 1958, they reached 100 million burgers sold. In 1961... They grossed, uh, oh, he paid the brothers 2.7 million. That was a long time ago. And verbally agreed to give them 1% of the gross revenues of these little hamburger chains. But they didn't put it in writing and he reneged because he felt that they had charged him too much. Do you know what that 1% of the McDonald's Corporation gross revenues would be today? $280 million a year. 1%. Sucker, I wish he had... Say that to us. Um, in 1963, they passed a billion burgers. In 1967, they started opening their first international restaurants: Costa Rica, Tokyo, Amsterdam, Munich, Sydney. I've eaten McDonald's, not hamburgers, but something burgers in India. And after you eat curry three times a day, thank you very much, Caleb. You just desperate, but you can't. I mean, you can't do hamburgers because it sounds like it might be pork and the Muslims wouldn't like that and they can't make it um, beef burgers because the Hindus wouldn't like that and so I think it's chicken burgers but you know what after eating curry three times a day 
Now, remember, I grew up in the Amazon jungle where we had no spices. The Waurani didn't even have salt. So curry is, I mean, it's a stretch. 1993, 100 billion. And the readers, remember the readers on the sign, this many sold, this many sold. None of the readers would go to 100 billion. So at 99 billion, they had to drop it off. 100 billion. And today there are 32,000 restaurants with 400,000 employees, gross revenues of $24 billion in sales a year. And that's just McDonald's. Do you know who's better known than McDonald's in the world today? Coke. Do you know that the McDonald's arches and the name Coke are better known than the name Jesus Christ in our world today? We took a a big executive from Coca-Cola down to the jungles just March this year and had an Indian woman teach him how to check people's eyes and uh, fit them with glasses. He's six, eight, and big. He's gigantic. And she's about 4'11 and slight. And she was teaching him. And when he didn't do it right, she was smacking his hand saying, No, I told you to do it like this. If you get a copy of one of our videos, you can see him. We call it uh, IC Coca-Cola. It was the IC program. He's Coca-Cola. Um, franchisable. You know what? If we would start using strategies that we can copy and that we can make uniform, all of you who are systematic can go and do what God has programmed you to do. We need to have the innovative people, though, decide on those those programs. Do you know the other night, do you know how good I felt when I heard King's Pride Hammond talking about his group of pastors using dentistry taught by Empower that Charlie Vitado and, and I dreamed up after Charlie joined our board because, and I can remember, you know where I first showed Charlie Vitado the portable dental system all packed up right up there? I showed him right out here in this corridor. There was a lady here and she said, oh, hey, Charlie's a dentist. Steve, show him your dental chair. And Charlie just rolled his eyes like, oh, I'm going to have to look at one more portable dental chair. And I rolled my eyes because I knew if he's a dentist, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, you can't teach people to do this. But when I started unpacking because this lady was insistent, and he started saying, whoa, whoa, that's, um, have all of you seen how this thing works? You want to see it work? Okay, the, the objective was to make a, <clears throat> a dental operatory that could be used in frontier areas that could be set up. You know, you're walking down the trail, you meet somebody and you say, oh, my tooth hurts. And you don't want to take 20 minutes to set it up. So we wanted to set it up in, be able to set it up in one minute. That's 60 seconds kind of minute. And we wanted to be able to have somebody be able to carry it all day. So it has, you know, shoulder straps and it has a belly belt so that you can do it. And uh, if somebody will time me, I'll see if I can do it in a minute. I'm getting kind of old and can't see very well, but you guys are supposed to say on your mark, get set, and go. Shortest minute in life. Guys, I think we might make it. Uh oh. Hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Just in case you wanted to recharge the battery, use a solar panel. And this, I'll let you figure that one out. And this, we were just asked to make, do you know how many ophthalmologists go overseas to do eye surgery? Almost none, because... They can't take the equipment that they need. This is an ophthalmological surgical table. Put the patient on here. 
tape their head down, make a sterile field over their eye, put this in place, and then the, the doctor sits on a stool here and looks through his microscope. I see program. We could teach you to check people's eyes, scan them for uh, cornea scarring and for cataracts, and then prescribe glasses and fit them with glasses. And, um, and I don't mean to demean anybody, but our first topic a couple days ago was about preserving the dignity of the people that we go to serve. I would suggest to you that it's embarrassing to me when we send our used scratched glasses over because they're no longer good enough for us, but they're good enough for those people. And those glasses are brand new, all metal frames, and I think enough of them that I wear them. And I can't function without glasses. Five dollars for a brand new pair of glasses, and if it's done by indigenous people, we'll provide them at three dollars and seventy-five cents a piece in eight powers and you know what? It's just about innovation. We're doing the innovating, but you guys need to do the implementing. Or if you're innovative, come and join us. In fact, at the end of this month, we're going out to call to all a world conference of Christians getting together who have decided, let's, let's forget the organizational distinctions. Let's get together and let's ask, what are you better at doing? What are you best at doing? What has God equipped you for? And what has God equipped you for? And what has He equipped me? And let's do it together. Let's go out and get this job done because that's what God has called us to do. We need to have franchisable tools. We need to have franchisable strategies. And King's Pride the other night, when he was talking about they have, his pastors have. Now, they didn't, it wasn't like they didn't have anything to do, but they have attended 40,000 patients in an area in Ghana with 2 million people with one government dentist who doesn't have very good training and, and virtually no equipment. And now they're using this stuff. I went with some people from here to Afghanistan and these people started telling me that they had a medical clinic and they had a dental clinic now. And I said, well, what kind of equipment are you using? And they said, we've got this really cool portable equipment so we can take it out into the communities. And I thought, oh, sucker. We, I mean, we got competition and now, I mean, why didn't we get together? So I wanted to see it. And they said... The problem is we can't take it out into the rural areas because so many people are coming to the clinic to get their teeth taken care of that we never have time to take it out there because then we take it out there and then people are saying, you know, what about us? So they said, we need some more. And I walked in to see it and it said ITEC, Indigenous People's <laughs> Technology and Education Center on it. We need to be, we need to, our primary strategies need to be franchisable. We need to be doing this together. And then... This is very scriptural, and we're going to go through it real quickly, but um, we need to measure our success not by what we're doing, but by what our disciples are doing. Remember in John 15, Jesus said, I'm the, brand, I'm the vine, you are the branches, and he said, you better bear fruit, because if you don't bear fruit, my father, the husbandman, is going to cut you off. You have no use to me. I mean, that's what it says. And then he went over and he repeated and he repeated it and just said, you know, you can't bear fruit unless you're tied into me because I'm the one that produces the fruit. You just hold it. And then he said, for those who are bearing fruit, he said, and if you do bear fruit, my father, the husbandman, is going to prune you. He's going to cut part of you off so that you'll bear more fruit because we need discipline. These hard times really make us more useful to the Lord. And then Jesus said in verse 8 of John 15, he said, you go, therefore, and bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Not my converts, my disciples. And then in verse 16, he says, Go and bear fruit that remains. Most of the fruit that we have borne in North America in this last century, if we left or when we leave, it all leaves with us. That is not discipleship. That's not the way we're supposed to be doing it. That's not the way we're going to get the job done. So, number one, what's principle number one? No one omitted, no one left out. Everybody, no needy person not, not reached, and nobody who's a God follower left out of the formula. Number two, franchisable strategies. Number three, measure our success by the fruit that our disciples bear. And you know what it says in Proverbs? It says that... The good father, the good parent, leaves an inheritance, not money, leaves an inheritance of principles and things to his children's children. It's the grandchildren that are really the proof of good parenting. You can coerce your children into doing some things if you start early enough. 
But when your grandchildren adopt the principles that you believe are important in life and adopt the culture that you have adopted, then you know what you know. Then I know that my son has not only obeyed me, but he has bought into it because now he's bigger than I am. And he's got six children. I only had four. And he's one of the best dads ever. I had to figure out daddying all on my own because I never had a dad growing up. And I didn't know how to do it. I watched kind of some other people and I saw some things that I really didn't want to do. And then God gave me Jenny. And that's why Jamie and I have a great relationship. And I do with my other two sons. And they do with each other. I mean, if you saw us all together, and there's a bunch of us, and we have tile floors, so it's really loud. And we all live within about half an hour of us. So, I mean, it takes about that long to get a family uh, party going. And when you get there, we hand out uh, earplugs. In fact, in my... In my windbreaker, I've got earplugs, you know, this kind of stuff in your ears. Fun. We need to pass on a heritage. It says that the parent who does not pass on a heritage is worse than an infidel. That is our responsibility. It's, it's about discipleship. And that brings up the fourth policy that I would suggest. And that is that if you want to know how to do missions right... I mean, I came up with this little acronym because I was trying to make it simple. Not for you. I was trying to make it simple for me. No, go, show, and blow. You shouldn't go any place. I mean, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to go into the whole world, right? But if we don't know the gospel ourselves, if it hasn't impacted our lives, if it hasn't transformed us, the last place we need to go is to the mission field. Ask missionaries. Every weakness you have will be exacerbated out there. Every tendency that you have to be impatient or, or insensitive. Well, <laughs> I just came back from Korea. I went to Korea. They said I needed to wear a suit. And I said, ah, I don't wear suits. I went over there. You did have to have a suit. Fortunately, Jenny put in an old, ugly brown suit that I had. I had had it for five years. I'd never worn it. So I did have a suit to put on. It was really stood out. But I'm being culturally sensitive. I learned to say, Hankumal Chalmoteu. After greetings, that means I don't speak Korean. But because I speak five languages, I, I guess I was saying it pretty well. And so people just start jabbering to me, and I just said, I just told you. Ah, ah. But I wanted people to know that, you know, you need to have something to, to make contact. So I started doing the, uh, when I'd get up to speak, I'd do this thing. And Moses, my interpreter, he said, only Muslims do that in Korea. I was taking India to Korea. I got to do this a lot. Everybody coming out over the age of 13, you know, wants to bow to you. Pretty soon I was... <laughs> Wonderful people. South Korea is now sending more missionaries into the world than North America. That's the good news. You know what the bad news is? They are emulating us. They are going out and trying to make the whole world Korean, just like we've tried to make the whole world North American. I kid you not, I was down in Porto Velho, Brazil, with 65 tribal, tri- tribes of people represented at this conference. It was their conference. They brought the meat. They, they made those cows walk up to two weeks to get there. There was nothing left of them, but it was really, it was really fun. One day they had tribal day. I mean, they're tribal people. So they all undressed into their native costumes. It was really great. I was walking around. I mean, I was in my native costume. The people that I grew up with, um, I couldn't wear... I mean, at my age and my color, if I was wearing a Waurani costume, it really would have... um, It probably would have been distracting. But a whole bunch of people wearing tufts of feathers came up to me and... uh, and they kind of gathered around me, and then one fellow in Portuguese said, um, Can we take a picture? And I said, Obrigado. I would love to take a, a picture, but I don't have a camera. And boom, out of nowhere, I don't have any idea where they were keeping them. They all have digital cameras. <laughs> and then they were taking pictures. And then another group of people dressed a little bit differently, but about the same amount showing and not showing would come up and and finally asked one guy, said, why do you want to have your picture taken with me? He said, because you're terra selvagem. Savage land. And I said, yeah, well, I'm... (laughs) (laughs) Savage land. That's what they call end of the spear in Portuguese. And he said, I said, but 
But why? He said, because most people don't recognize that we are truly indigenous people. We are tribal people. We are the real deal. And I said, uh, excuse me, so you want to have your picture taken with me so people will know that you're tribal? He said, yeah. You're Teja Sauvage. Everybody knows that you live with tribal people and yet you're a gringo. So if you're associated with us and we have our picture taken with you, people will believe that we're tribal. Digital cameras and cell phones. I still wonder where they had them. (laughs) And the only thing that comes to mind is indecency. Velcro. (laughs) Velcro. (laughs) Yeah. But you know where I was going with that? That night, we had a tribal um, worship service. It was just incredible. And then we had the Lord's Supper. They used manioc bread and acai juice, a red berry juice that they drank down in the Amazon. And then they had special music, and they said that they had young people from six tribes that were going to come and sing and lead us in worship. I couldn't wait, because where I come from, Everybody sings something different, whatever they want, and if they try to sing choruses, and they love choruses, you know, especially like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, and somebody's doing this, and somebody's doing that, you know, and everybody's, oh baby, just, you do whatever you want because it's totally egalitarian, and everybody sings on a different key. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. Only heaven could make sense of that. So I thought, now we're going to have six tribes speaking different languages, and they're young people, and they're going to come together and sing. And then they marched in. All the boys had pleated black pants on and white shirts and narrow ties. And all the girls had black skirts and white blouses. You know why? Because they went to a Korean Christian school. It was really sad to see them. And then they got up and it's like, all eyes on me. We're not starting this thing until every eye is on me. And then it was... Boom, boom, boom. And we were in the Amazon jungle in Puerto Vallejo. Now, I love Korea. Don't get me wrong. But you know why Koreans... You know why you have to wear a suit in Korea? If you're going to speak in front of a church group, you have to be wearing a suit if you're a man. I don't know what you women are supposed to wear. You have to be wearing a suit. You know why? Because missionary Underwood, who went over there, wore a suit all the time. A black suit, and he wore a top hat. Somehow they've gotten rid of the top hat, thank God. I had to, the next time I got invited over to go speak to a pastor's conference, you know why they wanted me to go over there? Because they know that they've got to change how they're doing it and they don't dare tell each other, so they got me to go over there and they figured, hey, disposable Steve. <laughs> I had to go to J.C. Penney's and buy a suit. Fortunately, they make them for people like me. It took me about 15 minutes to go in, which is my limit of shopping. They copied us, and now they're taking the message to the world the same way that we took it to the world. At that conference down in the jungles, Eli Katachunga, who was, who was here with us just a couple of years ago, Eli said, I want all the tikuna to stand up. And when they all stood up, he said, you tikuna, if we're going to take God's message to the other tribes in the Amazon, and he had a couple of principles, and he said, now listen to me, tikuna, when you go out to take God's message to the world... Don't you go and try to make those people tikuna like the missionaries tried to make us North Americans. He said, God has not called us to make people tikuna like. He has called us to make people Christ-like. And you know what? It's not enough that we do it in the Amazon jungle. That isn't enough. In quick succession at iTech, I had three people come to me and say, what about North America? One lady was going on vacation with her husband. Her husband called and said, Hey, can we stop by and talk to you on our way? And this woman said, I have a message for you from God. It must be God because I wrote it down and I still couldn't sleep the rest of the night. And she said, I just feel that I need to tell you, Steve, don't forget about North America. I said, I mean, we're talking a little planet but a big world. And we're trying to, I mean, we're just a little organization. We're trying to reinvent things so that we can get this message to the whole world. And um, so I, I I mean, I made some notes and then I put in the file. Her husband called me the next day and said, Steve, it was Saturday, and said, "Uh, can we stop by and see? And I said, I thought you were on vacation. He said, this is no vacation. The only thing that Tina will talk about is how she feels it's absolutely critical that you 
start developing programs for churches to reach out to their communities in North America. So I met them over there, and he said, and we're not having vacation anyway. I mean, Tina is up all night writing, making notes and stuff. He said, please, please, at least if you talk to us, maybe we can go home and have a few days off there. And then somebody else came and somebody else came. So we have started what we call Life University. Jamie right there, and where's Jimmy? Where are you, Jimmy? Oh, there he is up at the top. Okay, sorry, Jimmy. They've started Life University. One of the things that they're doing is they're training people like you who can't go overseas. And there's nothing special about going overseas. We just need to go to where people are, unlike what their disciples did over here. I mean, you need to get out and go where the people are, usually. Although it's Skype and, I don't know, maybe don't need to. But one of the things that we've started is doing life coaching teaching people who have a balanced and a stable life how to go out and offer to be personal trainers to people who either have finances that are in disarray or families that are in disarray or fitness, you know, they, they want it. And they become the personal trainers and do the whole thing from a scriptural basis and then faith is one of those things at the end. But the people get to decide, okay, this is what, this is what I want you to help me with. I want a sounding board. I want somebody that, you know, and it's nothing to do with church except that once the people start having a personal trainer, I mean, I bought a treadmill because people told me that was a great way to get in shape. I can't run any further now than I could when I got the treadmill. And I didn't want to use it because then it wouldn't, you know, it would devalue. And I got a bicycle. That didn't help. Jamie and Jimmy are running triathlons. I went and watched them. It didn't help. The first church that they offered to do this for, to train them so they could train others, to train others, to go out and meet people at work, you know, at place. They do this, uh, what, what do you call that, James? What's the unlimited fighting? It's where people, they put you in a cage and you try to kill each other. And ultimate Yeah, ultimate fighting. What, did you get on pay-per-view? I mean, this is talk about radical approach to uh, evangelism. They invite men to come over to, uh, and everybody chips in to do the pay-per-view. Everybody brings uh, food and drinks, and they're making friends with people in the community because that's what new men like. And uh, I'm, I'm expending the same kind of energy with my grandchildren. It's, it's like ultimate fighting sometimes. But. <laughs> and then they offer to be their personal trainer, their life coach. And you know what? It's working. The first church that they didn't had 30 people volunteer to get trained so they would know how to approach people and stuff. And uh, we have a whole facility. We're also developing programs for churches to, you know, single mothers. How do they get their cars fixed, especially if they're just eking out a living? So wanted you to know about that. And then finally, I just want to end with this, and I promoted this before. You've never heard me ever promote anything that we've come out with We did come out with this, though, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. This isn't me to you. This is people around the world that I interviewed and asked, if you could give us, the North American church, one piece of advice that would help us do missions more effectively, more efficiently, and more sensitively in your part of the world, what would you want to tell us? And we interviewed them, and then we shot it right here at the church with a live audience, all volunteers who came in. And I'm telling you, it was really sobering for some people because most of us haven't had a chance to hear from the people on the receiving end. This is seven chapters. You can do it in a home Bible study. You can do it with your family. You can do it yourself. You watch a chapter. There's a workbook. If you're going to teach it, there's a teacher's guide that takes you deeper, gives you more background. But the message comes from people out there. And then each one refers to a uh, reading in the Great Omission. And uh, we're out of those. But if you go by the booth and see Jamie and Jimmy, or Jamie and Jimmy and Brian, they'll sign you up. And we'll... If any of you get this and, and want to return it, you can return it. And I will personally see that it's taken back. It's the best thing that we've done. I benefited from it just going out and asking people like... Um, well, like Florence Mwindi and Oscar Murillo. Oscar Murillo said, you know, when your children are on vacation, we don't get any ministry done. All we do is babysit your children because they all want to come over here. And I said, well, why don't you just tell them no? And he said, and I knew the answer. He said, because in Kenya, we don't say no when people want to come visit. We can't say no. 
He said, but your young people come and they start trying to tell us how to do cross-cultural ministry. He said, we've been, I mean, we're cross-cultural here. And he said, we still can't figure it out, but your teenagers have it figured out. And then he said in front of a huge audience, he said at Urbana, 22,000 North American students, he said, he thanked North America for all we had done taking the gospel to them. And then he said, but I have some bad news for you. You are no longer the center of Christendom. The center has moved south. And he said, and you no longer are the center of the passion for taking Christ's message that has moved east. And then I said, Oscar, is there still a role for us in North America in missions? And he said, yes. Now, we were sitting in a bar. We were at Urbana in St. Louis, and we were sitting in a bar because it was the only place that wasn't full of Koreans. Do you know what? Asians at 22,000 students, and I kid you not, I asked a bunch of people to, to guess how many of the students there were Asian. Now, these were all North American students. These weren't people that come over. One-third of all the students there coming because their passion about doing missions were Asian descent. And they make up, in North America, I mean, Asians probably make up, what, one-thirtieth? one-fortieth of the, of the whole student population. I don't know. But they are passionate for this. We are being left. So Oscar and I, we're sitting, in the, we're sitting in the bar and we're sitting on these stools that are too high to have your feet on the floor. So it's kind of uncomfortable. So I just put my feet on the rung. On the, but, but Oscar somehow was hesitating to do it and I could see he was uncomfortable. And finally he looked down because he was thinking, Kenya. And in Kenya, you know, the rung would probably be wood and you stick your foot on it, you're going to ruin the finish and he didn't want to do that. And he looked down and he looked back up at me and said, what he had just told me is he said, yes, there's a role for you. You are the most creative people in the whole world. You're the people that can figure out how we can get this gospel there. The technology, the methodology, the resources. He said, you guys, that's your role. And then he looked down because he, he just had to put his foot up and he said, see? And he pointed down. And the rung, whoever had made that stool, knew that people sitting there weren't going to want to have their feet down there. And if they put their feet on the rung, it was going to ruin the finish. So they had covered it, sheathed it in a brass covering. And he said, see what I mean? If you folks would do that and would let us actually go to our people. Now, a lot of people going to Kenya, no problem with that. But do you know what the most Christian nation in the world is? I believe it's Kenya. Okay, Rwanda, second. We're sending teenagers to go over there to evangelize in Kenya? You know one of the things Oscar said? He said, you folks brought us the gospel, but you have forgotten much of it. He said, that's why your mainline denominations are coming over to Africa and you're getting our bishops to rule over you because in in mainline denominations here, those people that want to stay true to the Scripture are having their property taken away. And to not have their property taken away, you know what they have to do? They still have to be under the authority of a Bush bishop, an Anglican bishop or an Episcopal bishop. So they're going to Africa because over there the bishops are still true to the gospel. And he said, folks, you need to wake up and you need to understand that we need you in the kingdom. But if you keep doing missions to us and on us instead of with us, we're going to have to close the door. Let's do God's will, God's way. Don't make, don't make the terrible mistake of choosing which of God's children are not going to hear this message. We've got to do it this way, not this way. And we do have a role. Let's play that role. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters who are here, Lord, I know that we all share a passion to be used by you. We're all searching to, be, to, to achieve that status where when we stand before you, you will be able to say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray that you will give us a passion for your word, that you'll give us a determination. If we're the only one that does it, that we do it your will.